Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. My intention in doing this show is to provide information, insight, and comfort to people all over the world by helping to answer life's unanswerable questions. We have Perdita Finn back with us. Yay. Hi, girl. Welcome back. Hi, Julie. I can't imagine anyone I'd rather talk to than you. <laughs> you are so oh, much fun. Well, you're one of my favorite people on the planet. So I was delighted that we were able to pull this off again for a second time. You guys are going to love, love, love Miss Perdita. Let me tell you about her. Perdita Finn is a masterful storyteller who captivates her reader in a tale of wonder, enlightenment, and magic. Perdita and her husband, Clark Strand, co-founded a non-denominational international fellowship called The Way of the Rose, which inspired their book, The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary. Perdita is a former high school teacher with a master's in the teaching of writing from Columbia University and is the author of several books. By the way, when you read my book, Angelic Attendance, and you sent me the sweetest note and you said, oh, it's so well written and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, my God, that's like Moses giving me a review coming from you. I was so honored. Well, I'm honest. It is one of my favorite books, Julie, and it's it's just, it's so beautiful. It's one of the most liberating, life-changing books I've ever read. Oh, thank you. And I just, and, I, and I'm not hyperbolic. I'm just being honest. I've given it to so many people. I, I hope everyone who's doing hospice or death doula work reads it. Um, I hope everyone who has a loved one who's nearing the other side reads it. Well, thank you. It meant the world to me when you said that because... My God, she's a writing professor at Columbia, for God's sakes. And she oh. likes my book. Oh, what a compliment. Lastly, Perdita's new book, Take Back the Magic, Conversations with the Unseen World, is now available for pre-order. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I was so honored that you asked me to write a, an endorsement for it. And it's just fabulous, you guys. You need to get on the pre-order because you are going to be so, so glad that you well, did. I'm going to tell you about a little thing my publisher is doing for anyone who pre-orders the book, and they've got it all worked out. I don't know how the details work, but if you pre-order, I'm going to do a special free evening conversation with anyone who pre-orders the book. Wow. That'll so be th they're setting it up, my publisher. So, you know, I, I don't know whether you send them the receipt or whatever with the day. They have, they're doing all the technological stuff, but I will be posting about that. And if you pre-order it, they'll be, we'll get to chat about it and we can have a kind of book conversation about it. Fabulous. All right. Well, we'll, we'll remind everybody 
once it gets, when is it coming out? It's in the fall, right? September 12th. Okay. All right. That's my dad's, my dad's birthday's the 10th. So pretty close. All right. You guys are going to love this because I'm going to be asking her some really life-changing questions. Okay. Buckle in, girl, because I got four pages of questions for you here. (laughs) Throughout history, people have been fascinated with communicating with the dead, especially their deceased relatives. Why? I think for our most ancient ancestors before civilization, communing with the dead was how they navigated life. And it was ordinary. It was every day. It was mundane. But you you asked the dead for help to find food, to find warmth, to for healing, for love, you know, your small little you know, there were 10,000 people in all of Europe 50,000 years ago. And gosh, you were hoping you'd run into another tribe. You know, you didn't have Tinder. How else were you going to meet somebody? You know, <laughs> And so you're asking the dead for help. The dead, I think, become the gods and goddesses. And the stories of our ancestors, those ancestors become more and more mythic over time. And so they ultimately become, you know, the, the gods and goddesses. And we tell stories of the saints you know, in the Middle Ages, people turned to the saints. And that that was that leftover tradition of, you know, there's a saint for every body part in your body. There is a saint for every profession. There is a saint for every dilemma. And and we we have helpers on the other side. And people used to know that. And when Protestantism came in, the Reformation was really about silencing those other voices and creating this, you know, monolithic God who didn't include all the saints and the voices from the other side. Um, That there was really only one voice from on high. Interesting you mentioned that because two things come to mind. Number one, I was talking to a client this morning who had lost her dad recently and she moved home to New Jersey from New York City to help care for him. And she wanted to move back to the city. Well, we're talking with dad and heaven, his spirit. And he's saying he wants her to go to Brooklyn. And she's like, Brooklyn, why? He kept saying, Brooklyn, you got to go to Brooklyn. You got to go to Brooklyn. And I I know Brooklyn's really cool. And they've redone a lot of it and everything. And, he, and so she said, well, can he find a man for me? And he said, yes. And he um, looked for the St. Christopher medal. <laughs> she's half Jewish and half Catholic. Her dad was Catholic. Her mom was, her mom is Jewish. She's still living. And she said, I don't even know what a St. Christopher medal is. And I said, St. Christopher was the patron saint of protection. I said, when I was a kid, we always had a St. Christopher medal in the car. And a lot of people wear St. Christopher medals. And so that pertains to what you just said. And then when I was growing up, my whole life, my Mima and my mother and my grandma Ryan used to, when they'd lose something, they'd say the prayer, Tony, Tony, look around, something's lost and must be found. And it's a prayer to St. Anthony to help them find stuff. St. Anthony is amazing when you've lost stuff. And, you know, I know so many people who pray to St. Anthony, except if you lose your car keys, because so many people lose their keys, right? And so there's an ex, there's a saint I, I love. And her name is Saint Zita. And she was the housekeeper of this Italian family in the 1100s. 
And they were a really rich family in Northern Italy. And she was always giving away their stuff to the poor people, like their extra clothing or shoes or extra food. And they would get so mad at her and they would fire her. And then the whole town would get in an uproar because they'd fired her. They'd have to rehire and she'd do it again. And when she died, she became, she wore keys because she was a housekeeper. So she managed, you know, the pantry and the doors and locked up at night. So she helped St. Anthony out because she was worried that he had too much to do. So Zita, Zita, if you please help me find my missing keys. <laughs> That's great. I love that. I like to have her in my files. <laughs> exactly. I thought you were going to tell me it was because St. Anthony didn't know about cars because <laughs> they didn't have, they hadn't been invented yet. Oh gosh, that's great. There's a quote that goes like this. If you knew what the dead had to teach you, you would know how to live, end quote. Who said that and what does it mean? <laughs> you go right to the heart of things. Well, you know, here's the interesting thing. I have been... Pr- talking with the dead for 30 years. And I write about this, my journey in the book. And it was a very private experience. And, you know, I didn't know how to explain it. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't think I was psychic. You know what I mean? Like I was just experiencing them and that when I would ask them for help, a grandfather, an aunt, an old doctor friend of my father's, they'd show up and they'd help. And I didn't see them. I didn't hear them. But what I've experienced was if I asked them for help, I would get help. And it was really a kind of extraordinary experience. But then um, on the evening of June 16th, well, two things happened. In May of 2016, my daughter was very, very ill and the doctors couldn't tell us what was the matter. And no one could tell us what's the matter. And we were going to, you know, New York City Fifth Avenue specialists. And they're saying, your kid is sick. And I don't know what's the matter. You should go to so-and-so. And we'd go to so-and-so. And they'd say, boy, this kid is really sick. And then they'd send us to so-and-so. And no one could tell us what was the matter. And that, as a parent, is a terrifying experience. And ultimately, at the gym, uh, this a woman said to me, my my trainer, actually, she said one day when I was crying about the situation, she said, you need to talk to my psychic. And I thought, oh, no, I hate Woodstock. You know, I live in a town where everyone's <laughs> crystals and that I don't want I need this. I need a doctor. She said, no, you need a psychic. And I came home and my daughter was so sick and so frail. And she looked at me and she said, mommy, I just want to get out of my body. And that was terrifying. And so I walked into this woman's store, she didn't advertise, tiny little woman. Um, And I looked at her, I was so embarrassed. I'd never consulted a psychic before. And I said, you know, I've come to ask for help. And she said, I know, come back in my room. And she brings me back into this tiny little room. And my parents were instantly in the room. And they were really there, Julie. She knew them. You know what I mean? She, and she does what you do with people. You know, she knew what they looked like. She knew who they were. She knew their names. And I had been talking to the dad until, the, I mean, I'd been engaging with them, but there was a part of me that didn't think it was real. That was making it all up. And she told me that my father, who was a doctor, had gotten me to her 
because she could guide me. He could guide me through her to get my daughter the healing she needed. And it was a revolutionary experience. And it really like flipped my reality inside out, my modern scientific, you know, or I would say scientific fundamentalist approach to life was just transformed. And it was in preparation, I think, this experience, because three weeks later, on the evening, early in the morning hours of June 16th, my husband had a profound experience. I was a sound asleep upstairs. I had no idea this was going on. But the next day, he seemed very odd. And we went for a walk later in the day. It was uh, dusk, and Venus was coming out in the sky, and the wild roses were all in bloom. And he looked at me and he said, last night, I went downstairs to go for a walk in the middle of the night. He's been doing that since he was a teenager. And I went to walk, leave the room. And a man's voice said to me, don't go out tonight. Stay home and be very, very still. And he listened to the man. And he sat on our couch and he got very, very still in the darkness about two o'clock in the morning. And he shut his eyes and began to meditate. He used to be a Zen monk. And then he knew someone was in the room with him. And when he opened his eyes, there was a woman standing before him. And she had black electrical tape over her mouth. And I'm going to stop the story here for a moment. This is a story my husband's told in his book, Waking Up to the Dark, and which we've written about in The Way of the Rose. But what I write about, we call the Take Back the Magic is the third book in this trilogy. It's the third story of the apparition. And you want to say that I was really reverential and, oh my gosh, you had this incredible encounter. And I was like Sharon Moonstruck. I wanted to slap him and say, snap out of it. I can't take this. I can't do this. I have a sick kid. I, my parents just showed up in the psychics and now you're seeing people in our living room. This is, this is beyond my threshold. I don't want to know about this. And I said, was she a dead person? And he said, she was the most alive being I've ever met in my whole life. She was the living life of the cosmos. I'm like, oh. As some of you may know who will read Way of the Rose, these encounters and appearances of the lady continued. And I didn't know what to make of it, Julie. I really just thought it was, I really was fed up. I was really like, I can't do this. This is too much. I met my wit's end. But then Clark started to share with me what she was saying. And on the evening of August 15th, which is um, on August 22nd, excuse me, the Feast of the Coronation, she said to Clark, if you rise to pray the rosary tonight, a column of saints will support your prayers. And I knew my husband hadn't, my non-Catholic, we both knew at that moment that she was, you know, the mother and that she had come. And I also knew, Clark said, what does she mean by the column of saints? And I just knew. I said, oh, it's all of these ancestors I've been praying to. And I think you know that everyone on the other side is a saint. You know, maybe not in this life, but definitely on the other side. And when I am so struck by how many psychics I've come to know who do pray the rosary, 
because the rosary is such a beautiful way of going back and forth across the veil. So one of the things, Our, Our Lady began speaking to my husband, and she gives messages on the 16th of every month. But one of the things she said very early on was, if you knew what the dead had to teach you, you would know how to live. Profound. The whole time you were telling that story, which by the way, you guys, is she a masterful storyteller or what? We've been doing this for 10 minutes and she's already got me enthralled. And I know the story, but I have goosebumps all over my body, which is validation from spirit when that happens, when I get the goosebumps. Yeah. Some people call them angel bumps. So so it means that our loved ones, here's my interpretation, see if you agree with this. It means that our loved ones and all of the deceased are there to help us. All we have to do is ask. Exactly, right? And they want to help. It's, it's you know, people say, oh, I don't want to be an imposition. And I say, you know, my son will call me because he needs something. He needs a chicken recipe or he needs help with a parking ticket. I don't care what he calls about needing help with. I'm just delighted he's calling. And the dead feel the same way. They're happy to help us get a parking spot, but they'll also help us heal and find love. And like your friend, they want, you know, what do the dead want for us? The same thing our parents want for us. They want us to have meaningful work and healed bodies and loving partnerships. And Yeah. In Brooklyn, apparently, from my client. For my client. It's the hottest, coolest place to live, Julie. I guess. (laughs) I was just there a couple of weeks ago. It was fabulous. So many cultures have stories about magical things and communicating with the dead. One of my favorite stories is about an archaeologist who was in Ireland and was on some kind of dig. And he was walking down the street doing this just off the cuff research project is talking to people. And he said, excuse me, ma'am, do you believe in fairies? Excuse me, sir, do you believe in fairies? And his favorite answer was, no, sir, I do not. And they're everywhere. I love that. So what is it about these stories that keep them alive throughout the generations and people continue to tell them? Why? Well, because the dead really, the dead are there. And they're there to help us. And those stories, you know, when we lived in, you know, if you go to Australia and you meet the Aboriginal people there, they have something called the song lines. And they've lived in Australia for 50,000 years, right? That's a lot of ancestors. And they have stories about the dead. Every rock and stone and tree has a story about an ancestor. And they share those stories and they tell them and, and the same is true in Ireland. The fairies are the most ancient ancestors, right? They go, they're so far back, they're 8,000, 10,000 years old, right? That, but these stories persist. And because the love persists, and that those really ancient ancestors love us and want to keep guiding us. I, I read recently a, about how before the age of surveying, the way you knew land belonged to you is you had to know the story of your land. You need to know all the stories of the dead people on your land. Wow. Yeah. And that was how people located where they were. They were their song lines. And the ancestors tell us where we are. Lately, you hear people trying to resurrect some of this. A lot of times on Zoom conversations, people will say like, you know, I live on Iroquois land or 
or, you know, Lene Lenape land or, you know, Ashinabi land and then I land. And they're, they're trying to connect to the history of the people who've lived there. And I would, I am trying to include and think about the ancestors where I live. There are, you know, there are people who've lived here, human beings for 13,000 years where I live and where you live. And, but there are also ancestors who were older than that. I live in the mountains of the Catskills and 350 million years ago, this was an ocean. And when I go in my backyard, you can find stones with shells and sea creatures in the stones. You know, the dead go far back. Wow. Interesting. Well, and I think that the ancestors want people to remember them, to your point. And here's a case study about this. My daughter-in-law, Mallory, Dr. Mal, her family, they were at her grandmother's house, her Mimi's house, fixing Thanksgiving dinner one year. And she was in the kitchen with her mother and her aunt and her grandmother. And the grandmother has antique uh, like kitchen utensils, big spoons, serving spoons and stuff on the side of the cabinet. And they saw these spoons come up off those nails and land on the floor. <laughs> they all looked at each other and thought, what the heck? So they're on the phone with me, of course, wanting to know, all right, what's going on? So I was able to tune in to see who was there. And it was a farmer and his Confederate soldier son. And uh, and they were looking for the Confederate soldier's daughter. And I, we got the names of all of them. They said that was their land. That was their farm. Their, her Mimi said that they had found uh, old farm equipment like handles and stuff when they were digging up for the garden, digging up the yard for the garden. It was a housing development now, but it's probably 50 years old. They've probably been in the house 50 years. And so one of the grandsons was able to find the original deed and found, indeed found the name of the farmer and his Confederate soldier son. And we got all of that. So I think it's interesting listening to what you're saying because these people wanted them to know they were there. I'll tell you an amazing story. A very So if you look behind me, I have an ancestor altar where I have photographs of all my beloved dead and not just my family, but teachers and friends and pets and everyone, you know, hundreds of photos behind me. And we have an open floor plan with the dining room connected to the kitchen. And one day my son in the middle of college and he went off to be pre-med in college and he really became Mr. Science, you know, oh, my parents are so woo-woo. I don't want anything to do with that, you know. Organic chemistry is what I'm studying. And he was home from college and he was by himself in the house. And it was a quiet summer day. You know what I mean? Dead still. No wind, not a breath of wind. Quiet, nothing happening. And he was in the kitchen making himself something to eat. And he looked over at the ancestor altar and thought, and he said he had this thought like, oh, my mother. And Every photo fell off the ancestor altar at the same time, and not a one of them broke. <laughs> he looked, he was so startled and freaked out. And he said, and I said, and one of the things I, and I know you would say the same thing is, they just have been trying to get your attention. 
and they really want to help you and they want you to acknowledge them and they were having such a hard time getting through to you and i often say that to people like it's not that the dead want to scare us but in the modern era it's sometimes hard to get our attention and the more we engage with them i find the less startling their interactions can be do you find right that? and they're all pure love the whole evil exactly. spirit thing doesn't exist it's been used thank you throughout the millennia to control the masses you know look at the whole covid thing fear is the best control ever of the masses we just I mean, went through this I mean, one of the things I do talk about in my book is that, you know, during the what we call the witch craze in Europe, the thing that that women and the few men that were killed were accused of was talking to the dead. That was the thing more than herbalism or midwifery. That was the most dangerous thing. And of course, it's about control. You're not going to listen to the authority, whether it be a religious or political authority if the dead are empowering you and helping you yeah you're not frightened and yeah. i think that's one of the reasons i do this work and i know you do it too julie is it really banishes fear well the whole thing about confession you know cradle catholic 12 years catholic schools and the confession deal is you got to tell your sins to the priest and the priest is going to absolve you of them because the priest is the one who's going to talk to God. Well, that didn't make sense to me as a small child. And I remember being in second grade, getting ready to make my first confession. We were lined up, getting ready to go into the confessional, which was scary as hell anyways. You know, you're going into this dark room and, the, and you can't even see anybody. And there's a priest on the other side of this screen thing. And I, and I, at I was probably seven. I remember thinking, I can't think of a sin. I'm going to get in trouble because I can't think of anything. You know, what does a child know that's a sin? And so I came up with something like I stole a cookie out of the cookie jar or I called my brother a bad name or something. And I thought to myself later as I grew up, I thought, how does how do those priests, how did they keep a straight face with all these little darling little kids coming in and saying, I stole a cookie? And you know, they'd say, okay, go say a Hail Mary or something. And uh, and I say, yeah, well, I haven't been to confession since I was in about the third grade. Because even then I thought this doesn't make any sense. I can talk to God directly. I don't need to go through well, some it, pastor. That, we don't need mediation. Right. We can all do this. And and I mean, I think one of the reasons I love your work so much is you reclaiming your right to do this work and helping other people to do the same. And that's really what my book is about, is trying to help people know that they can have direct access right. to the divine and to the helpers on the other side. Right. Back to the fossils in your backyard. Tell yeah. us about where you live and why you and Clark chose to live there. Well, it's so interesting. You know, we went, when we moved here 30 years ago, we couldn't have told you why we live in this little ramshackle cottage that we bought for too much money. It was built in the 19th. So we have this little funky house and it must have been built by, we always joke, it was built by two carpenters with a six pack and too much pot, you know. <laughs> it's got a great feng shui, but they were not really good carpenters. It always, you know, whenever we have someone come in to fix it, they always go, oh no, look at what they did. <laughs> There's the electricity or the plumbing. But we walked on this property and Clark and I both looked at each other and said, we're home. And we're nestled 
by a line of mountains. We're at the very edge of the Catskill Mountains. And those mountains were called by the Lenape people, the wall of the Manitou, the line of mountains that separated the land of the living from the land of the dead. And the area in Woodstock where I live, which has been such a hub for artists and Joseph Campbell lived here, you know, when he was writing his books on the power of myth. I mean, the amount of spiritual energy there, Tibetan monasteries and Orthodox Christian monasteries and, and you know, every rock and roller from Jimi Hendrix to Janis Joplin to Bob Dylan lived here. You know what I mean? Like, there's something about the energy of this place. And it drew my husband and me in. And we only discovered 10 years ago that our actual property is situated and surrounded by cairns that may have been built 5,000 years ago that mirror the constellation Draco in the sky. And that the indigenous people who came here and those, you know, I don't know what they called themselves five years ago, 5,000 years ago, they brought the bones of their dead here. This was the land of the dead. And we see a remnant of that, of that in the story, uh, Rip Van Winkle, because this is where Rip Van Winkle falls asleep for a hundred years. It was a magical realm. And you feel it here that there is really, you know, a, a psychic friend of mine says the ley lines match up perfectly with glass. I don't understand any of this, but match up perfectly with Glastonbury in England, that it's, it, and, but we know that you and I've talked about, for instance, Cahaba near where you live. There are places that have really profound spiritual energy and Woodstock is one of them. What's a cairn? Oh, a cairn. Excuse me. It's a pile of stones and you, you, the biggest pile of stones you can think of is Stonehenge, right? Right. But there are smaller versions of those or these stone creations that are connected to celestial events. And these are stone serpents. And when I first heard there were stone serpents in the woods, up, you know, within a quarter of a mile of our house, I couldn't believe it. And I went to see them and they look like stone serpents. And, you know, they have crystal eyes and, and they have shown, this local anthropologist has shown that they exactly map the constellations. Wow. And they're very, very old. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, and I think, you know, you have the rattlesnake mounds. They're connected to the snake mounds you see too. That's well, similar. well, when I run into a place like that anywhere in the world, of course, I have to scan it because, you know, I'm a nibby nose. I want to know what's going on. And there's a place here and I'll take you there when you come this summer, if you want. And it's called Gravity Hill. And you want to go. <laughs> It, yeah, it's this big hill and it goes out into a state highway and you, you're you looking at the state highway. You put the car so that you're facing the highway at a stop sign. You put the car in neutral and the car is pulled up backwards into the hill. And it, like by itself, five miles an hour. And Tim and my son, Jonathan, and I went there one time. And I said, okay, we're going to do this. And they, of course, thought it was nuts, but they humored me. We did it three times, and each time it was pulled up the hill. So I'll take you there if you want. As a matter of fact, it's on the Google Maps and stuff. It's so famous. And all these university professors and their teams have come to study it. Nobody can figure out what's going on. So, of course, I scanned it, and I thought there maybe there's an Indian burial ground or something here. 
And there is further away, but there's a vortex at the top of this hill. And it's almost like if we put a, a chain, like on a wrecker truck, you know, a tow truck and put it on the car and it pulls it up in the vortex. It's almost like it winds it up and pulls it up the hill. It's wild. It's so much fun. So gravity hill. Point being, there are these kinds of vortices and other constellation mirrors around the world. Well, the whole thing about the pyramids that they're lined up. And I just thought the pyramids were in Egypt. They're everywhere. We have pyramids in the U.S. They got pyramids, the Aztec pyramids. They've got them in in all over the place, all over Europe. Yeah. And some of them are older than the Egyptian pyramids. You know, one of the things that's amazing is Memphis, Tennessee is an older city than Memphis, Egypt. Really? Yeah, I know. I didn't know that. My husband, who grew up in Memphis, always tell, loves to tell me that detail. Huh. It was so, settled longer. It was a city before, you know, it's an old, old Mesoamerican city and in Memphis, Tennessee, and it was actually older than Memphis, Egypt. Wow. Well, the, the Bosnian pyramids are said to be older than the Egyptian pyramids and they have healing powers underneath them. I want to go sometime and they have water that runs through them and they act as energy generators. Well, one of the things Clark and I got fascinated by after experience was, you know, apparitions of the lady, of course. And one of the things that's so fascinating is, you know, our lady of Lords, when she appears, she appears in a place where they found evidence of human habitation for 300,000 years. How long has she been showing up there, right? And, you know, we went to Our Lady of Rocamadour in France, and there's a cave right next door to Our Lady of Rocamadour with cave paintings from 30,000 years ago. People have been coming on pilgrimage to her, and she had a different name then. You know, the lady, you know, the mama, mama's name may change, but she's still mama. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that whole Bosnian thing, the archaeologists talk about that they're lined up with the stars and they are at a certain latitude and longitudinal positioning that most of these pyramids mimic. They're all at the same. So how does that work when it's all, I mean, gosh, we could go on for days about that. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go check it out and see what's going on. Well, if you ever come to visit, I'll take you up to go see the dragon stones because they're just amazing. They're beautiful. Yeah, it's so powerful. I'd love you to scan them. They're really. Okay. Well, and I don't have to be there. It's just more fun if I am. Oh, much more fun. Yeah. Why have females been removed from most religious histories? (laughs) How much time do we have, Julie? (laughs) Give us a synopsis. Let's let's do it in one minute. sometime around 10,000 years ago. And there've been a lot of theories about why this was so. And we st- we started, we stopped being hunter-gatherers. And hunter-gatherers live moving across the land. So they are following the herds and the seasons to eat, right? And following, you know, going to Florida when it's winter and going north in the summer and and, and eating sort of, as they flow and working with the seasons. But around 10,000 years ago, we started to practice agriculture. 
and we got into a lot of trouble. And in the beginning, it wasn't problematic. It was more like what we call horticulture. People would scatter some seeds and they'd return to a place where they'd scattered some seeds. And um, one of the things that's very interesting about this moment is it looks like we started farming not to grow wheat and barley for bread, but to grow wheat and barley to make beer. So in fact, we got drunk. And that, and in one of the oldest stories in the world, the Enuma Elish that comes from Ur, Babylon, the mother goddess's grandson gets drunk and kills her. And, and he gets drunk and kills his mother, his grandmother, and he puts a sword in her heart. And as a Catholic, you may know the image of Our Lady of Sorrows is shown with a sword in her heart. And that image goes all the way back to Tiamat, the grandmother who's murdered. And in fact, the word Tiamat gets translated into Hebrew as the word Tohom, the chaos of the deep. And in the beginning of Genesis, the when T Marduk kills his grandmother Tiamat, he splits her body in half like a shellfish, the scribes in the Enuma Elish. And so the splitting of light from dark and this chaos in the waters of the deep at the beginning of Genesis is a rearticulation of the murder of the mother, the great mother. But I think what happens is as human beings start controlling the land and they start forcing it to be fertile, right? All kinds of problems arise. A lot has been written about this. We get our first diseases and plagues. We, those those diseases and plagues come and, you know, it seems like you've got all this corn and wheat and barley, but if a plague of locusts comes in and they eat it all, then you have nothing. And in fact, as hunters and gatherers, you're eating an incredibly diverse diet. And sometimes there was more of this and sometimes there was more of that, but you had a, a resilient diet. An agricultural diet is not resilient. And so you start going through these waves of starvation, feast and famine is way horrible. And civilization emerges from agriculture and the oppression of the land and forcing it into fertility. And the, the land quickly grows unfertile when you're farming it because you don't have nitrogen fertilizers yet. So what do you need to do? You need to conquer more land. And so agriculture is the beginning of war. It's the beginning of slavery. And it's the beginning of misogyny because it's the death of that grandmother and those mothers and those wise women. And it's, it's suddenly the grandmothers who aren't fertile, aren't useful anymore. And the women's body, what we're doing to the land, we're doing to women's bodies. We're forcing them into fertility to produce children, to work in these fields. And you see science arising, religion arising, and violence arising. I summarize it this way, monocultures give rise to monotheism, give rise to Monsanto. And we all know what Monsanto is just poisonous all. So it's kind of a catastrophe. My I actually, in a story about the dead, my mother got, who was an incredible gardener, got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And in those days, we didn't know Roundup, which is made, glyphosate made by uh, Monsanto was dangerous. And, you know, she just happily sprayed it on her roses. They told her it was safe. And she got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, and 
it was some years, about 15 years after she died, and she and her brother had famously been fought with each other. And, and he had done something I hadn't liked that I can't tell you because I've promised him I'll never speak of it again. But they said to him after he was dead, oh, I'm so mad at you, uncle. You've got to do something to make this up to me. And literally, Julie, that night, his daughter from his second marriage, who I've only met twice in my life, well, I don't know how she got my email, emailed me and said, Perdita, didn't your mother die of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Because my fiance is the lead lawyer in the class action lawsuit against Monsanto, and I'd like to include your mother in it. Wow. Wow. Is it still going on or was it settled? It has been settled um, for $9 billion, but it has not been dispersed as there's so many people. You know how that's me. My brother and I joke that we'll take each other out for a cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts when we get out. <laughs> yeah. It's not about the money. It's about the gesture. And Well, the, fact, the point. Yeah, absolutely. So and for my uncle, it was he showed up. He got it done. He let me know. He didn't, he didn't want any bad blood between. And that's what you always say from the other side, even people who are really complicated are just love. Yeah. They're playing a part. All the snarky personality traits stay with the body when somebody dies. I have women say to me, Oh God, I, I just can't even imagine my mom was the bitch from hell. I can't imagine her being there when I'm dying. And I say, that's her personality stays with the body all spirits are pure love and well, you know, so they're all there when you talk about that i mean i sometimes miss my mother so much i had a dream about her last week and i just you know i wake up with this egg she's been dead for 20 years and i think oh i will see her again the moment i die and no you know and my mom and i had a difficult relationship sometimes you know i think a lot of people have difficult relationships with their parent mothers but my mother shows up Julie, I can ask her for anything and she shows up. Anything. And for my kids, my kids, she just she'll do anything they ask. How wonderful. I had it. I, I'm starting to think that my clients today were just on my schedule so I could talk about them with you because I had a client this morning, first thing this morning, a gal who, when her dad was dying, the one I told you about, who wants her to move to Brooklyn. She said that her dad kept saying the last few days of his life, fine, how are you? Fine, how are you? And he kept looking around the room. Fine, how are you? Fine, how are you? And she said, and then I read your book and I thought, oh, these are the family members who are deceased who are coming to greet him and be there for him as he's transitioning. And I call them the Welcome to Heaven Committee. And she said, it it made us nuts. He said it for several days straight. Fine. How are you? Fine. How are you? And he'd move his head. Well, to go back to what Our Lady said, if, if you knew what the dead had to teach you, you would know how to live. To be in relationship for me with the dead on it, I'm in a daily relationship. I begin my morning. My husband and I have our coffee and say our rosary in bed and watch the birds. Our kids are gone so we can actually enjoy the mornings. And but then we call in the dead for help. And it's amazing to me who will show up some, you know what I mean? Like someone I haven't thought of will show up and I think they'll pop into my head and I'll think, oh, I wonder what they want to do. What project do they want to collaborate on? And I'll give them a job and they'll get it done. 
And what I've come to realize is all of these people I love on the other side. And I've begun to realize how loved I am. And knowing the reunion that's waiting for me when I die has really transformed my relationship to death. Oh, me too. If that's the worst thing that can happen is we're carried to heaven by angels and all our loved ones are waiting for us. Okay, bring it on. You know, you know my it makes me less afraid. My father-in-law, when he was dying last summer, and, you know, we were, Julie, you were such a help to us and to my husband, you know, guidance and helping us get there in time and helping us take seriously what was happening. But he kept saying that he wanted me to go to the garden party. <laughs> he kept saying that sounds like a wonderful place to be going. The welcome to heaven party. Yeah, that's what I talk about. Absolutely. Garden party. Most of us have busy lives and... We know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one, it's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones. And I find that they're really helpful. They save me time. They're easy to take. And I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals, B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, all together, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals.com, and use Julie Ryan at checkout, and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. You talk about the 200-year period in Europe where normal people were tortured and killed for communicating with the dead. You touched on it a little bit earlier about it was a power play, and people went underground and and did their ceremonies and their prayers and things like that. Tell us more about that. How did that come about? How did it finally dissipate? And did we get over it? And I know I'm asking you these questions that are long answers. So give us the, the I'm, give, know, I'm giving the short notes. version. I, you know, I teach courses on, you know, I teach a six week course on just, you know, the, I'm going to offer one again in July on the witch, on the witch craze. And how do we heal from the wounds of that that we carry in our body fanatically? Um, you know, one of the um, myths about this period of time is that it happened in the Middle Ages of the Renaissance. And that's not actually true. It happened on the eve of the Enlightenment. It happened in the 1500s and 1600s going into the 1700s. The last witch was killed in 1730. And, okay, and... It happened in places not that were backward and uneducated, but in the most educated, most rational places in Europe, the university towns of Germany and Scotland. In places that were backward and uneducated, like Ireland and Portugal, you don't see any witch burnings or witch prosecutions. It's reasonable men making terrible, terrible decisions. And you know, what unleashes this? It's a 200-year period. 
I mean, the best book I've ever read about it, and, you know, there ought to be so many more books that are not enough, is a book called Witch Craze by a scholar called Anne Barstow. And she really wanted to document what individuals' experiences were like in this and to kind of the extent of it. It's the most scholarly, but also the most accessible book I've ever read on the witch experience. Um, there's also a wonderful uh, documentary you can watch on YouTube called The Burning Times. And what happened, there was a, so you have in on the edge of what we call the modern era, the printing press gets invented right after the death of Joan of Arc, fascinatingly. And there has been some theory that printing, that these technological revolutions create violence, upsurges of violence. And that's a lot I can go into about why that is and how it changes the way our, it makes our brains more abstract and less empathic. And people were very illiterate before the inventing of the printing press. Your local priest in your local village probably was illiterate and had never read the Bible. People were kind of Christian, but they were just doing what they'd always done. And if we have to change the name, we'll change the name. You know what I mean? Like it, things were like they'd always been. They were living in the rhythms of the seasons. When the printing press gets invited and invented, the two most popular books in Europe are the Bible. And a book that's written called the Malleus Maleficarum, which is on the identification and the persecution of witches. And it sort of outlines how to identify a witch, which is basically an uppity woman. And a woman engaging in irrational behaviors, a woman who's talking to the dead, a woman who can communicate with the natural world, with the animals a woman who has a knowledge of the land and its stories. And these were ubiquitous behaviors among grandmothers and mothers, right? And this was just what people had been doing since we'd been human beings. And suddenly these behaviors become evil. And it unleashes, this book unleashes this crazed period in Germany and Scotland primarily, keeps over into England and France, and Italy, but the worst places are in Germany and England. In some towns in Germany, not a single woman was left alive. Wow. Not one woman. Wow. Every girl, mother, grandmother. And they didn't, they didn't just kill them. They sexually mutilated them, raped them, tortured them, and then burnt them alive. It was the most sadistic horrific violence you can imagine. And, you know, there's also a relationship between this and the persecution of the Jewish people as well going on. So, and of course, it, it, we see these same behaviors during the Holocaust, right? Like, like, this is a rehearsal for the Holocaust. And, you know, we see, is it over? Well, again, it, it, be, it died down in 1730, right? But then it, it became the Holocaust in the modern era. And, it got exported. What made it die down was it came to the new world. 
and it was slavery and the treatment of indigenous women and Native American women in this country and the brutalities inflicted on those women. So the war against women in Europe just became the war against brown and black women. So the Salem witch trials, were those going on at the same time? Yes. And here's the amazing thing. You know, Arthur Miller did us a disservice, not just to Marilyn Monroe, but also with the crucible because he made it seem like the Salem witch trials, you know, what was it, 60 people were hung in Salem as witches, that it was a fault of his, some hysterical teenage girls getting out of control. No, it was Cotton Mather from Harvard University. It was the scholars, it was the good doctors from Harvard. They were the one who started these trials and made this all happen. And so just like in Edinburgh and work, Wittenberg in Germany and Heidelberg in Germany, these centers of education, these centers of science and rationality and enlightenment establish their power by unleashing violence against women. Did, I always thought that it had to do with women that were healing with herbs and the they land swept, and stuff like yes, that. Th those women definitely got swept up in it, but it's really, and, and you know, look, when you're having this kind of level of violence, it's going in a lot of different directions simultaneously. So it was a way of steal, you know, there's a book, Caliban and the Witch, which is about how it was about property reorganization and stealing land from women. That's true. It, there's their, um, you know, healing practices of women were demonized, right? And this is the movement towards the medical profession. Right. But the biggest thing that women were accused of was talking to the dead in Italy and Germany. And, and that's the thing that really fascinates me. That, and, and how many of us talk to the dead? How many of us talk to her? My mother, who would have called herself an atheist, I would come and say, who are you muttering to? She said, oh, I'm just talking to her, my mother, and apologizing to her. You know what I mean? Of course, right? Like, it, it's so natural to talk to the people, those on the other side. And, and the silencing, the silencing of the other side is also the silencing of the natural world. Because when we silence the other side, we silence the land of the dead, we're also getting ready to destroy the earth. And that's what the colonization of the earth is going to do. We're going to really, we're going to colonize the whole planet. We're going to destroy it. We're going to kill everything. We're, we're going to really change the way we're, we start to live in a materialistic world where nothing is alive, right? For our medieval ancestors, every tree might be the mother goddess. You know, they were lived in a very animistic culture. You know, the silencing of that meant, you know, that's the beginning of factory farms and medical experiments and nightmares beyond nightmares. Wow. Well, I don't mean to bring in a negative vibe here, but I think it's important for us to discuss this because most people aren't aware of it. They I'm really certainly... I'm not going to study it when I can come to you and you've studied it and you know all the history and you can give me the synopsis of it in five minutes or less. But I, th but I think it's important to know that this has been going on since the beginning of time. And, and why is it you're, it's, it's wrong for you to talk to your dead ancestors, but it's okay for you to pray to some saint? Exactly. What's up with that? 
because the priests control the saints and they don't control the dead. You know, there's this wonderful feminist scholar, her name is Max Dashu, and she's documented these letters from the priests complaining about women talking to the dead instead of talking to them. Wow. And so how do we get it under our control? And that's what it's really about is control and fear. And so much of the demonization of the other side, these horror movies, these idea of, you know, the walking dead, the vampires, all the ways we frighten people about the other side when it's just love has been a way of making us frightened of our allies, our friends, and our helpers. Well, every once in a blue moon, very rarely, I've had somebody come to me, usually a fundamentalist kind of person, and they'll say, you have to prove that this stuff is real to me. And I say, well, really, I don't. Would you rather talk about football or the weather? Or what do you want to talk about? The restaurant we're eating in? And then, you know, I take it away and then they say, no, 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 no. I want to hear more. But I, I don't believe that you can talk to the to spirits. I just don't believe that. And I'll say, well, that's okay. You know, it's good to be a skeptic. I'm skeptical. And then I'll say, well, do you pray? And they'll say, well, of course I pray. I'll say, great. To whom are you praying when you're saying your nightly prayers or whatever? And Jesus, God, whoever. I say, okay, great. Do you get answers? Oh, yes, my prayers are answered a lot. Okay, who's answering them? Well, Jesus is answering them. And I'll say, okay, so when you're talking with Jesus, are you sitting on the living room couch and Jesus is sitting next to you and you can talk to him and you can touch him? Well, no. I said, no, you're talking to Jesus's spirit. So you're talking to spirits and you can just see the light bulb go off in their head and they say, oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, I never thought of it that way. And I said, it's the same thing. We're all doing it. We've all done it since the beginning of time and you're doing it. And all spirits are pure love. Period. That's right. And, and I always say to people, don't believe me, put the dead to the test ask your grandmother for some concrete help, you know, see what happens. And you let me know what happens. Yeah, absolutely. When you say that you and Clark have your coffee in bed and you say your rosary and then you call in the dead, what does that mean? What do you do? Okay. Hey, anybody that's dead that's hanging around me, come on we, in and help us today. Yeah. Okay. We fret. We worry. I'm a class. I am an Olympic class warrior, Julie. I have two kids. I have, you know, animals. I've got, a, you know, I've got this 1970s house that's falling apart every time I turn around. So I got a lot of worries, just like everybody has a lot of worries, right? But here's the thing. Here's my anti-anxiety medicine that I take. I, I fret. I think about all of my problems and I assign jobs to people on the other side. So, you know, like that housekeeper in Downton Abbey, you know, she calls all the servants together in the morning and tells them, you know, you, you're cleaning the drawing room and you, you're making pastries for the king. I make my assignments to the dead. And I they might be everything from, you know, help my daughter. And I, you know, and I also call in saints too, like, you know, St. Christopher and St. Anthony and all these saints. I, you know, but here are my problems. Who do I need help with? Who do I put on this? My father who cut me out of my will, which is this is, you know, the book is about, always answers my financial. If I need help financially my father shows up. Who was a physician. He was. And I often, often, but you want to hear an amazing story. So I was once, my daughter, I was taking my daughter to a doctor's visit during COVID. And 
you know, she goes to a lot of doctors. She has an incurable genetic condition that requires a lot of specialized care. And we were headed to a new doctor during COVID, and I wouldn't be able to go in with her as her advocate, which I usually do. And a lot of these doctors are not healers, and they can be, you know, very abrupt and very frightening to her. These doctor's visits can be very frightening. And this was a cardiological visit, and so there was a lot of anxiety around it. So on the way to the city, I'm calling on my dad for help, and I'm also calling on every doctor friend of his, every nurse I remember from the hospital, his secretary, right? And I'm, I'm talking to them, Dr. Gallison, I want you in, and Dr. Baxter, and Dr. Lincoln. I'm, I'm, you guys, I want my whole team there. We've got to make sure this doctor behaves himself in this visit. Well, out of the blue, Julie, for a reason I couldn't explain, I remembered this man in my little tiny town of 2000 people, his name was Vigo Peterson. And he was the ice cream man. He was, his father had been a Swedish immigrant and set up an ice cream store in our town. And Vigo had wanted to be a doctor, but his father wouldn't let him become a doctor because he had to carry on the ice cream business, which Vigo hated. Now Vigo made the best ice cream you've ever eaten in the world. And in the morning, he would put out the flavors he'd made the night before and everybody would run into town. To, I mean, it was, I've never eaten ice cream so good. He hated everybody. And the only person he liked in town was my father because my father said he kept the ice cream parlor like an operating room, a surgical theater. It was so clean. And my father used to say to Vigo, why don't you come and watch me do surgery? I'd love to have you come. And so he really liked my dad. Anyway, but he tortured the women who worked for him. And these young women who would work for him in the summer, he made them wear hairnets and gloves and he would yell at them and he'd take out all his frustrations on them. And they were shaking and fearful, but the ice cream was fabulous. So I think of Vigo and I think, Vigo, you're on the medical team for my daughter. Bring some sweetness to this visit. I dropped my daughter off at you know Mount Sinai Hospital waiting outside nervously. She comes out an hour later and she says, mom, this is the best doctor I've ever been to. I love her. She says, I'm doing amazing. She says, I'm doing everything right. She says, I've got great instincts about how to manage my, it was, an, it, it was like, we never have doctors visits like this. And, and this woman has stayed on the team, obviously, and been a real guy. But here's the kicker. So I come home and I start to teach one of my workshops on collaborating with the dad. And I'm telling the story about how Vigo showed up and we had a great visit and I credit Vigo with the sweetness of this visit. And there's a woman there from Canada and she says, wait a minute, not Vigo Peterson from Marion, Massachusetts. And I said, yeah, that's where I grew up. It's a tiny town with a post office and a general store. Okay, tiny. I said, how do you know Marion? She said, my sister spent a summer there in the 70s working as one of the ice cream girls. It was the worst summer of her life. <laughs> she would write us stories about how much he tormented these girls. She was in a terrible state. It was a, she thought it was going to be the summer of being up near the beach and having this like wonderful summer. And he was horrible and she had a horrible time. But it was, you know, 50 years later, right? And her sister's being treated for cancer. She has stage four inoperable cancer, Julie. And she said, do you think it's okay if I tell her this story 
and see if she asks Vigo for help. And I said, I think that's what Vigo wants. So she did. And she's in full remission, Julie. Wow. Wow. Fabulous. I mean, I know these stories aren't a surprise to you. No, no. But our listeners need to hear, you know, they, they'll they benefit from hearing them. Everybody needs to hear these stories. They're fabulous. A few more questions and then I'll let you go. Archaeologists have found prayer beads that are 100,000 years old. Why do you think people began making them in the first place? Oh, okay. So anyone is listening. You're going to help. I'm going to give you, we're going to all solve this problem together. I want you, if you've got a bead on, you've got a necklace or an earring. If you don't have a bead, you might have a button. Find a button and roll it between your thumb and your forefinger and see how it makes you feel. So I'm doing it. How does it make you feel just to roll a bead between your thumb and your forefinger? Relaxed. Not just relaxed, but if they measured your vagus nerve right now, you'd watch it totally relax in your vagus, your whole nervous system. And the, do you know why that is, Julie? Nope. Our first gesture when we're born as little baby primates, because that's what we are, is to do that little gesture. When babies are born, they don't let go. They got to hold on. And what they hold on to is the nipple. And when they roll it between their thumb and their forefinger, the milk lets down and the sweetness and the nourishment and the comfort and their body and their mother's body become one. And so we have, they found beads that are 130,000 years old. Okay, those are made of stone and bead, but we don't know about beads made early, older than that, made from wood or other substances. And why would you make beads? Why would making a bead? I was just reading about the Kung Bush people of South Africa, and they don't have any possessions. They don't believe in possessions, except for beads. And the thing is, if you're worried, and you're anxious, rolling that bead between your fingers, it's going to calm you down. And people have been making beads and using beads for prayer tens of thousands of years before religion started. Every hmm. tradition around the world has a tradition of using beads for prayer. Fascinating. You say spirits love to hear old prayers that are familiar to them. Why? When my dad was dying, he used to sing me this um, when I was a little girl. He always sang me a lullaby that his father, his Irish father, had sung to him when he was a little boy. Um, I, I'm so tone deaf, I'm not going to sing it for you. But, you know, you, have you ever heard of Tira, you know, Tura Laura Laura? Oh, sure. Yeah. And my father would sing that to me when I was a little girl. And his father had sung it to him. And when he was dying, I held him in my arms and sang it to him. But I also, my atheist father also died saying the Hail Mary with me, which is the prayers his mother had said when he was a baby and she held him in her arms. 
And it's just like those songs, right? We hear a song we love pops up on our playlist, right? And it brings back, it floods us with memories. And when, and when we say the old words, you know, we know, you know, we say, what's the difference between a prayer and a spell? Nothing. <laughs> you know, a spell, it's a summoning, it summons us. We hear it and we come because we love the sounds of it. It's one of the reasons that I say the rosary in English, but I also say it in Latin because I know a lot of my ancestors said it in Latin. And so I say it, um, I love saying it like a mantra like that. They would have said it in Latin in the Middle Ages, so I say it with them. I know people who learned, you know, the rosary in Gaelic and other languages to sort of align themselves with their ancestors. And I even learned the Our Father in Aramaic. So I could align, and it was a powerful experience to feel those sounds within me and to call on Jesus with the, those, not just using the words he gave us, but using the language he would have been speaking in. Interesting. Well, I have several friends whose parents at the end of their lives had dementia or Alzheimer's, oh. and and they were all Catholic, and every one of them would say the rosary every day with the, you know, whoever the caregiver was or the child that was doing it with them. And they they couldn't speak anything else, but they knew the rosary. I, I've heard this story so many times. Julia, had, I have a friend whose mother just died in Ireland. Really, you know, Alzheimer's didn't recognize anybody at the end and still telling her beats. Right. It's like It's like the thread in the labyrinth you know, with Ariadne, right? It like those old, and I think our souls are resonating with these old words. You know, we, we've said them in lifetimes before. Well, and the rosary predates Christianity. Oh. It goes way back. How far back that we know? I mean, what, what is the research show? The, we know that the tradition of offering rose, you know, the word for rosary means <laughs> five things. It means beads. It means telling a story. It means the lady. It also means a cemetery or place of the dead and women's genitalia. All the same word. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Life, I mean, you know, sex, death, love, all of it connected in roses. Now, I have a friend who's writing a book about roses right now um, that's kind of amazing about how roses created human beings. And so ro rosaries are really old. Japamala, a muttering garland, is the oldest word we have for rosary. And that goes back as far as we have, you know, in the, into the Indo-European tradition, as far back as we can go. Wow. People have been using beads for prayers and connecting roses with the mother forever well a lot of the apparitions of the of the virgin mary there's a scent of roses that people can smell often yeah yeah often. you compare the migration patterns of birds and insects to humans desire for pilgrimages what's the correlation i often i love pilgrimage i know you've been on pilgrimage and and I, 
we didn't used to go on vacation. We used to follow the seasons, right? And the rhythms of the seasons. And those migrations would take us to places we loved and where our ancestors had been, right? I, you know, I do a yearly pilgrimage up to Cape Cod. It's also my vacation. And I always stop at the graves of my ancestors. And, you know, my grandmother and grandfather and aunts and uncles are all buried at a little cemetery in Centerville, Massachusetts. And my pilgrimage is always first to the dead and then my vacation. And I think, I sometimes think of monarch butterflies. I don't know if you know, it takes them four lifetimes to do a complete migration. One butterfly will not do the full migration back and forth from America to Mexico. Will take four lifetimes. Wow. And I, I think we're like that. that. We're migrated. We're, our souls are on pilgrimage too. And I think when we begin to go on pilgrimage, we begin to feel the old song lines within us, the old pilgrimages within us. Um, well, well, you and I, before we started recording, we were talking about going on vacation and how families go to the same place every year exactly. at the same time of year. And and I never thought about it before, but it really is like a pilgrimage. It's it's, it's the old the old it's, way. It's the old so. migration, right? It's yeah. a migration. We go here then and we eat these foods then and we and we want to move and travel. That's what it means to, you know. Right. You, know. you also talk about how modern life demands that we rely on money for most of our needs, but the dead rely upon an economy of prayer. And with that, they can bring to us all kinds of miracles and magic. So the prayer is the currency with our spirits and our loved ones who are deceased, whereas money is the currency of human life. And we've gotten, it used to be, you know, when we were those hunter-gatherer people, we didn't have money, we had prayer. Yeah. You know, that's what True. we had. We really knew how to use it. And we really knew how to rely upon prayer. And, you know, I always say, you know, People who don't have money know a lot about prayer and people with a lot of money <laughs> think money can solve all their problems, right? That's a good point. You How know, do we know what request to send to what ancestor or do we send it to our guardian angel or our spirit guides or? Well, I think uh, for me, for me, I just work with the, the intimacy of the dead. And I always like to give a specific job to a specific person because then it weaves me together. So like I didn't just, I gave it to Vigo when he showed up with my daughter. And by by activating Vigo and recognizing him showing up, I also gave him an opportunity to heal with this young woman who was now an old woman, right? That he wanted to show her that he loved her and he wasn't a snarky old ice cream guy anymore, right? And he felt bad about how he treated her and he wanted to show up and make some magic happen in her life. So I like to call in the dead by name. Um, but I, there are two things that I use. One, if somebody was really good at something, like I was calling on the doctors, right? I wanted all the doctors to use their, to make sure the doctor's visit was good. But we, people also learn from failure. And there are people whose lives have been spectacularly terrible, right? Real failures. And those people have learned a lot from their failure. Now, I'll give you an example. We were talking at the beginning. I've been sober from sugar one year as of June 1st. 
But I am sober thanks to my best friend's mom, Rita. And Rita died at 52 years old, an alcoholic. She was a beautiful, charming, talented, funny, oh, I loved her, hopeless alcoholic. She never got, you know, everyone always said when Rita hits bottom, well, she, Rita's bottom and our bottom was really different. And she died at 52, her esophagus burst, you know, and she, from drinking so much vodka. And it was a tragedy. And when I wanted to get sober from sugar, which is not easy those first few weeks, I said to Rita, I want to be a grandmother. I want to grow old. I don't want to destroy my health. You didn't get sober. I'm ready to get sober. Help me do it, Rita. I pray to her every morning. And she has helped me. And often people, you know, I think they're people who screw up in life and they get to the other side and they'd like to make amends. Right? And they'd like to help out. Um, so I, I do like to give specific jobs to specific people because I love relationships. I love, be, you know, I love them. And Rita's one of those people when I die, I can't wait to give her a hug. Well, my guess is that intuitively, you know, which loved one, deceased loved one to give certain requests to. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. And you feel your way into it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I talk to spirit for guidance, but I don't necessarily ask them to do stuff for me, but I'm going to start, I'm going to start working on that. I'm going to tell you, Julie, you. I ask them for everything. So when the subtitle of my book, I had a different subtitle. My subtitle was getting to know the dead and my very wise and wonderful editor said, eh, that's a little bald. Dead is scary. You know, we got, we need a new subtitle. And you, as a writer, you're very attached to your words. And I'm like, oh, I love my little subtitle. And <laughs> But instead of having a hissy fit, I called on my great aunt and uncle were screenwriters in Hollywood. I only met them once. They were, and, and but they, they wrote the screenplay for It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, my. I know. Oh. Right. They worked on it. And so I thought, you know, you guys. I, I, you know how to make a popular hit. So I want you to inspire the people helping me come up with a subtitle. Help me get something that makes everybody happy. My editor wrote me back within an hour and said, what about conversations with the unseen world? I said, I love it. And that's what I'm talking about. This was a moment that could have been a difficult moment, I thought about went to my ancestor altar, looked and said, "Who do I ask for help?" Francis and Albert. Immediately, problem solved. Well, what's coming in for me with this is this is a way that you're connecting into that thought vibration through talking with your ancestors, and it's it's how we manifest things, and it's it's by a different name is you know getting into the vibe of what it is you want 
And I think prayer's done that since the beginning of time. And it's the same thing, the secret, the whatever. How do you manifest from an energetic standpoint? You're doing the same thing because every thought has a frequency, like every spirit has a frequency they keep throughout all their lifetimes. So by you talking with your deceased loved one and asking for help, you are connecting to that frequency and that's opening the door for manifestation to occur. Because when you do that, you're giving up trying to control it. And when we try and control a situation, the vibration wobbles. It's like being on a teeter-totter. When the when the teeter-totter is straight, that frequency can come in and you can manifest. So it's a way for you to manifest things. But it's sometimes for some of us, and I include myself among those people, it's so hard to take our hands off the steering wheel, isn't it? Oh, yeah. That's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and when we do, and I know you experience this through asking your loved ones, your deceased loved ones to help you with things. When we give up control, it allows things that are even more magnificent than what we can even envision to come in. So much more. I have a woman who studied with me since I first began teaching. And she, when she first came to me, she was in debt and she had a lot of credit card debt. And she thought, I'm just, I, and she had a job. She was you know, ready to retire from. She couldn't retire from because of her credit card debt. You know what I mean? Like stuck. Eventually, over the course of a year, she started teaching classes on something she loved. And she didn't, couldn't imagine how she was going to make enough money to quit her. But eventually she started making enough money that she could quit her job. But this debt has been hanging over her for four years. Out of the blue, she got a government notice. Has anyone ever had this happen? She's been, she put a team you know, of her great aunt and a bunch of other people on her debt problem years ago. Out of the blue last week, she gets a letter from the government. She's overpaid her taxes by $12,000. How often does that happen? Not very. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, all of her debt paid off. But first, Spirit made sure, got her doing work that she loved. In, you know what I mean? Got her out of the job she hated, transformed her whole life, and then took care of the debt. Well, and I think that's a really good point, too, because what happens is we don't see the big picture of what's exactly. going on. And there's always more going on behind the scenes than we can grasp at any given moment. So that's where faith comes in. If we have faith that it's all benefiting us in some way, even if it feels awful at the time, everybody that's been through some horrific experience will have some silver lining to the cloud. And they will say, I'm glad that happened, even though it was awful, because this and this, this and this happened as a result of it. Okay, two quick more, two more quick questions. What if the what if our ancestors or whomever doesn't give us what we want? How do you deal with that? Well, I always say prayer isn't a vending machine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and we here. uh, I'm writing that down, girl. That's good. I know you are. (laughs) Prayer isn't a vending machine. Okay. I knew a man who was very, uh, had been, he'd been left by his wife and he was heartbroken and the marriage had fallen apart and she'd left him and he could only pray to get her back. 
he didn't pray for understanding why she'd left or to be in a relationship. He could, the only prayer he would offer, the only coin he would put in that vending machine is, she will come back to me. And she wasn't coming back. <laughs> Let me tell you, she was done. <laughs> but he, and he said, he said, I said, well, what is it you really wanted that you didn't get? He said, well, I wanted children and, and I didn't get children and now I'm never gonna have children. And I said, uh-huh. Well, all of this is going on. This guy had years before, he'd gone to an Ivy League college and they pay Ivy League young men to be sperm donors in those days. And he had done this once to make, you know, to pay for his books or something. And then it's been eked out and, you know, never done it again. But while I was talking to him, while we were talking about his prayer life, his mother had gotten on 24 and you know, what is it, you know, 24 and me or whatever it is, and to do her ancestry and, you know, was doing genealogical work. And out of the blue, this young woman writes to her and says, I think you're my grandmother. Wow. And out of the blue, this young girl approaches him and says, I think you're my father. And she has two lesbian mothers and they're a family. And the whole gang is thrilled to meet him. And they love him. And his daughter is in the same business he's in. Wow. And she can't wait to meet him. And so he did get a family and a child, but he didn't get it in the way he thought he was going to get it. And no, his ex-wife has not come back to him. Do you know what I mean? Like, but, but it wasn't about her coming back. It was about her coming back so he could have a child. Right. Was and he was giving the child, right? Wow. So the universe said, you can have a child. You can have a child who's the child, a dream child. I love it. I love it. You say women who love the dirt, love the dead. I guess that's me because I love to garden. I love to dig in the dirt. I, you know, the dirt, my mother was a gardener and, you know, she, she, I loved watching her with her. I love gardener. I'm, I'm a terrible gardener. I try. My son's a great gardener. I'm surrounded by great gardeners. But yeah, people understand if you hold a handful of dirt anywhere you are and you think about what it is, it's nothing but the bodies of the dead. Dead trees, dead weeds and flowers, dead animals and insects, even, even manure, excrement is dead plants, right, that have moved through the body and the dead microbes. It's the dead, the, it's dead stones or even old dead oceans, like I talked about at the beginning. So you're holding, when you hold the dirt, you're holding the body of the dead. And that's where everything grows. Such a big statement. I have goosebumps on that too. Yeah. Yeah. Everything grows. Oh. Fascinating. Fascinating. I could talk to you for five more hours, but you know, can't do it. Tell us how, how we can learn more about you and pre-order Take Back the Magic. I'll talk to you for five hours offline, but yeah. But how how can people learn more about you and your work and how can they pre-order the book? Absolutely. Um, so I am on so Facebook. You can follow me on Facebook as Perdita Fenn. You can follow me on Instagram as Perdita Fenn. I'm on Substack as Take Back the Magic, Perdita Fenn. Um, I have a Substack newsletter, which a lot of people like to enjoy. Um, and 
then I have two websites, wayoftherose.org, you can go to, which is about my rosary work and the messages of Our Lady, and you can find out about rosary circles. I also have my own website for my own teaching. It's takebackthemagic.com. And there you can, at both those places, you know, at Way of the Rose will take you to Take Back the Magic and Take Back the Magic will take you to Way of the Rose. They're connected to each other. So you can find out about workshops. I am offering uh, an introductory workshop through the Shift Network starting in August. That's going to go for six weeks and end on my book publication date. I'd love to have all kinds of people join me for that. It should be a lot of fun. And um, I teach a lot of different workshops and love to help people collaborate with the dead. So those are the places to find me. And I hope I'll get to meet you and meet your ancestors. And we'll post all of that in the show notes. So it'll be easy reference. Thank you, honey. I just adore you and love you. And I appreciate you teaching us about all of this stuff because it, you've done the research I know you have. And I think most of us aren't aware of the vast majority of the things that we discussed. In well, this I don't know last that I'm time. teaching you, Julie, because you know all of this from the inside out. Well, I, don't, I don't know the historic stuff. And I, well, I don't know the scientific stuff that you know. And that's what I find. So do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know the science. Yeah. Yeah. The history. So. But together we can really reconstruct it, I think. Absolutely. So everybody, sending you lots of love from Sweet Home, Alabama, mwah, and New York, where Perdita is. And I will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan. And like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.